Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 32 today as we continue to study through the book of Exodus. Uh, If you're new to Bloomfield today, we've been walking through this book for some time and we're at the point in the book of Exodus where God has led his people out of Egypt, out of hundreds of years of slavery and captivity, and now he is leading them on a journey towards the promised land, and along the way, he is giving them his law. And so we looked for some time at Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments that God gives his people, and now what we see follows the Ten Commandments uh, is the book of the covenant. These are chapters where uh, God is now kind of unpacking the Ten Commandments. He's helping the people to see uh, how they might live according to those commandments. He's also helping them to see what the consequence is when they disregard or disobey those commandments. And that's the case in our text today. Uh, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, that God gives to his people. Uh, He now is giving them instructions as to what happens when someone does murder. And so that's what we will find in Exodus 21, verses 12 through 32. Uh, This is the inspired word of God. And so out of reverence for it, if you're able to this morning, if you would stand as I read our text to us. This is what God says to his servant Moses and then commands Moses to give to the people. He says this, verse 12, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only shall pay for the loss of his time, and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money." But when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, Wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. 
But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. And if the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. If you would, pray with me. Father, as we come to this text, we come to another passage that may seem a, a bit foreign to many of us today. The, the, the language here, the, the, the regulations here, things that, that, that seem foreign to us, that seem confusing to us. Or would you help us to sort these things out would you help us to see how this fits in the, the broader context of your word? And Father, I do ask in the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us to see the truth of the gospel as we consider this word today and to respond to that gospel through faith and through repentance? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When the summer of... 1992, I had my first opportunity to go on a mission trip. I was a fairly young Christian. I'd become a Christian through a campus ministry there at North Carolina State University, and I went to Bratislava, Slovakia. I was there for the summer, and during that summer, I spent my time along with other team members going on to the college campus, finding English-speaking students there in Bratislava, and talking to them about the gospel. And I remember one particular afternoon, uh, several team members and I uh, had met up with a, a group that was there sitting by a basketball court, and we had engaged in a conversation about the gospel, and, and we probably talked for about an hour or so. Uh, we did most of the talking. We were sharing with them the truths of God's Word. We were really unpacking the gospel for them. And then at the end of that presentation, I, I asked those young students, do you have any questions? And I'll never forget the very first question I was asked. Do you believe in the death penalty? Now, I wasn't expecting that question. Now, I was expecting a question about comparative religions or about you know, how, how do you know that Jesus is the only way. I was expecting questions about the gospel. But the question that was really on this, Slovaki, uh, this student's mind there in Bratislava was, do I believe in the death penalty? Well... Now, I'd only been a Christian a couple of years. I, I'd thought about the issue, but I really didn't have a conclusive answer to give at that time. I mean, I knew enough as a new Christian to know that, that God certainly says in the Ten Commandments that we, we shouldn't murder. Now, I knew that in the Gospel that Jesus died for our sin and that He forgives us. And so I hadn't really reconciled all that together yet to figure out, well, what does that mean about capital punishment? What does that mean in general about justice in our world today? And fortunately, one of the guys with me had thought a great deal about that. He was able to give a pretty good answer. But I remember that that started me on sort of a journey through the Scripture to, to better understand things like the death penalty and capital punishment. And I soon found that there was, and I believe still is, much confusion in the church today about this. Many persuasions, many opinions, many convictions about whether or not we should support capital punishment. And a lot of that comes from, I think, sometimes a misunderstanding of some of the things we read in Scripture. 
or an inability to really reconcile what various passages say. And so, for example, what we've seen in Exodus is there in the sixth commandment in Exodus 20, God clearly says we should not murder. But then here in Exodus 21, this text we just read this morning, God clearly says that there is a consequence for those who do murder, and that consequence is death. But then we come to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5, and we read these words from our Lord himself. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He is quoting this passage we just read. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now I say there's some confusion about this. I found there was further confusion this morning in the first service as a mother came up to me and said that her daughter turned to her when I read that and said, what cheek is he talking about? So just to clarify here as we start, this one. So even beyond which cheek we're talking about, there's some confusion here because people look at that and say, well, on one hand it would seem that to turn the other cheek and to forgive means we don't give consequence, and at the same time God clearly calls for consequence here. How do we put all this together? And so I want us to think about that today as we walk through this text. And as you walk through a text, it's important to remember it in light of what the whole of Scripture teaches. And so I think the points that we'll look at today aren't just points that we see in this particular passage, but really what we see in the whole of God's Word, beginning with this first one I've put there in your notes. Point one, it's clear in God's Word that human life is precious to God. It is clear that human life is precious to God. If you were with us last week, we dealt with a very difficult text. It's a text concerning laws about slavery. I would encourage you, if you weren't here, to go back and listen to that sermon uh, because there's a lot there. But I want to just give you a brief summary in case you weren't here to make sure you understand what we're talking about and what the Scripture here is talking about when it mentions slaves. This is vastly different than the atrocity of slavery that took place in our nation that's taken place in other nations over the last couple hundred years. This is an indebted servitude. This primarily in Exodus 21, this law is about slaves. These were Hebrews who, in, they were in such debt, they, they sold themselves into slavery. They entered into a contract with another Hebrew in order to pay their slavery off. They became their indebted servant. They were their slave. And so that's why you see language here, even in this passage, about the slave is his money. Essentially what that passage is saying is that he doesn't need to be paid, uh, he doesn't need to make restitution and payment because he's the one who's lost money and lost wages and lost work from that servant who was working for him. But what we saw last week, I hope you saw in that passage, is that in those laws about slaves that God gives, that what God is doing there is He is lifting up the servant and He's protecting the servant. Now those laws weren't there to endorse slavery and they weren't there really to protect the slave master. They were there primarily to protect the servant himself because God cares about His people. And every person fundamentally is created in the image of God. Even those today and those in this time who, who wanted nothing to do with God, who cursed the name of God, they are still image bearers of God. And what we see consistently throughout God's Word is that human life is precious to God because human life is created in the image of God. And so because of that preciousness, the due consequence, the due penalty 
against one who maliciously takes the life of another is death. There's nothing else that can make payment when a human life is taken other than a human life because life is that precious to God. Now notice what we see in the text. Verse 12 there. If a man strikes another man and he dies, the penalty is death. Verse 14, if a man willfully murders someone, the penalty is death. Verse 15, if a child strikes their father or their mother. Now the context here doesn't necessarily mean it's a young child. It can be a grown child. It can be a man or a woman. But if they strike their parents, their mother or their father, and in the context here in the Hebrew, that, that, that's not just a, a sleight of hand. That's a... They're intending to hurt them and harm them and even kill them. And so just taking that initiative to strike in such a way, God says the penalty for that too is death. And then notice what we read there in verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, if anyone is found in possession of him, he shall be put to death. And so back to that issue of slavery, for, for anyone out there today who even tries to suggest to you or I that somehow the Bible condones or supports the type of slavery that took place here in the 1800s, that they, they need to read this verse. Because what this verse says is that if someone is stolen and they are forced into slavery which is very much the context of human slavery today and 200 years ago, then the person who even possesses that slave should be put to death. And so you see here, God is saying that life is precious and there is an extreme consequence for those who attack life because they are attacking image bearers. And if they attack an image bearer, they are attacking God Himself. It goes on to say that whoever curses his parents shall be put to death. Uh, again, there's some depth in the language here. This is more than just a child, an adult, who's disrespectful to their parents. This is someone who, who has basically disowned their parents, who said, I want nothing to do with them, who, who's not taken seriously the responsibility that God gave them to care for their aging parents. And so that's the context we see in the New Testament when this passage comes back up. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees of the day, the religious leaders of the day, and they had kind of twisted this around to alleviate themselves of the responsibility of caring for their aging loved ones. And Jesus calls them into account for that by reminding them of how serious a neglect that is. And here in the Scripture, God says it's so serious they should be put to death because they've completely violated the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. He goes on and gives a variety of situations here again. We, we won't be able to go through every single one of these. But, but he even talks about things like if you own an animal. Verse 29, if you own an, an ox and that ox gores someone to death and you knew that animal was prone to, uh, to do that, then you and the ox should be put to death. And so God clearly teaches here that there's a death penalty in a variety of situations in which a human life is taken. And so again, that brings up the question, how do we reconcile that with the Sixth Commandment? You shall not murder. Well, hopefully, if you were here in our study of the Sixth Commandment, you remember some things about that. That the Sixth Commandment wasn't just a prohibition against killing in general. The Sixth Commandment was especially, particularly, a prohibition against murder. In fact, that the Hebrew word used for killing, there's a variety of them, and the word used there in the Sixth Commandment is a word that, that, that is, you, you, you intentionally 
murder someone. You, you kill someone. It's a word for homicide. It's not a word for execution. It's not a word for judicial use of deadly force. And so what God's saying in the Sixth Commandment is that we are not to maliciously murder and attack and kill. And then in Exodus 21, He says, if you do that, there is a consequence. And that consequence here very clearly is indeed death. But it's not a consequence that God establishes in Exodus 21. It's a consequence He had established long before that. And you may remember there in the flood account, there in Genesis chapter 9, uh, right after the flood, God gives instruction to Noah concerning those who would take life. Again, this had been on, going on for a long time. You go all the way back to the garden where Adam and Eve sinned against God, and then very soon after that, you see their descendants. And what happens between Cain and Abel? One murders the other. And so God, as He is showing His grace through Noah and His family, as He's going to establish this family and ultimately the nations through them, he makes it very clear that there's going to be a reckoning if anyone takes another person's life. He says this in Genesis 9, 5, and 6, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. And then hear this. This is why this is important. He says, For God made man in His own image. And so when man is attacked, the image of God is attacked. And when the image of God is attacked, there is no penalty greater than the one God gives here. Nothing less than death can pay for murder. So now, let's bring that up to my conversation that summer in Slovakia. Let's bring that up to our conversation in our culture today. What do these verses then say about capital punishment and the death penalty? I know there are a variety of convictions among believers on this issue. We live in a state in a commonwealth where there is a death penalty. We're one of 32 states in our nation that has a death penalty. I believe that there's a principle here in Scripture because of the value of life, the preciousness of life that would support capital punishment. But, but we also have to see that there are many problems in our culture today. And our culture today does not mirror what we see in Exodus 21 because what we see in Exodus 21 was swift justice. In Exodus 21, in the context here, if you did any of these things mentioned, the, the, the justice was swift and it was exact. There are other verses that tell us more about this system uh, to, to protect people so that someone couldn't just be a, a false witness. There had to be more than one witness in capital offenses. But the, the, the consequence was swift. And of course, that's not so much the case in our culture today. I was thinking about this just this week. I heard a report on the radio of a, a man convicted of murder who was put to death just a few days ago up the road in Ohio for a crime that he committed and was found guilty of 25 years ago. Again, there's so many issues there. We can't unpack all of that right now. But what we need to understand and identify is, is what is God's Word saying? What is the principle here? And the principle here is that human life is precious to God. Therefore, the taking of human life maliciously is punishable by death. Now, what complicates then the implementation of that is us. 
It is our world, it is following humanity as sinful man. Which brings us to the next point that I want to make from our text today, point two. And we need to understand what God's saying here is that vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to man. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to man. And so we see here in Exodus 21, this, this consequence, if there's, if there's harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye. We, we hear that phrase often, don't we? An eye for an eye. But how do we normally hear that? We normally hear that in the context of revenge and retribution. Well, they did this to me, and I'm going to do this back to them. Doesn't the Bible say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? It means I have every right to get back at someone, doesn't it? Well, what we have here, I believe, is actually something different than that. And actually, it speaks against that attitude of personal revenge. What we have here is this law of retaliation given to God's people, which indeed did say a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, and so on. But the reason it's so specific about those things is because God was telling His people that they shouldn't take personal revenge. He was telling His people here that that they should have the the penalty that goes along with the crime, that the penalty shouldn't be excessive. And He even says in the context of this, specifically talking about the issue where a woman goes into labor, has a child, and there's uh, not harm, but there's there's a consequence. says the husband decides the fine, but they bring it before the judge. What we have in the context of God's Word here is you have those who God has put in authority. You have judges, you have elders, you'll have these consistently throughout the Old Testament. And what we see in this Old Testament model is that God gives them the right to carry out the vengeance against people who have been offended. And he's not saying in Exodus 21 that that's the right of the private citizen. He's saying this needs to happen, but the authorities had this right. And I think there's very good reason for that because if you put this in the hands of every Hebrew person just as you put this in the hands of us today, you will find that our sinful hearts will lead us to be excessive in the penalty that we give. There's a reason that we all are familiar with the term frivolous lawsuits. When we think of frivolous lawsuits, we think of people who are seeking a retribution, they're, they're, they're seeking perhaps vengeance in some way, but normally it far exceeds the injury or harm done to them. One of the most familiar cases that probably most of you know something about is the woman who sued McDonald's for a hot cup of coffee. That, that case, Liebeck versus McDonald's, you might not know the actual details of what that actually came from was someone was indeed burned, she received third degree burns on her legs, and so there had been a process of complaints already, and uh, there was liability on McDonald's part. She was asking for $800. That's what she was suing them for. She just wanted help with her medical bills because they made the coffee way too hot. But that thing ballooned because what they found when they started looking into it was McDonald's had ignored all these different complaints and were making excessively hot coffee for their bottom line. The hotter they made it, the more coffee they got out of the bean. And even though people complained, they just kept doing it. And so there was a jury that decided, well, we need to change this. And so we're going we're gonna to find the penalty for what they did to be the, the profits from one day of coffee sales for McDonald's, $2.7 million. And that's what they awarded her. And so in that case, I don't think it was so much a, a frivolous lawsuit, but that's certainly what comes to mind because there are a lot of frivolous lawsuits out there. Here's a few I found this week. Any of y'all remember the show Fear Factor? Raise your hand. 
Some of you, man, the first service had never seen it. You guys are not sure what that says about y'all. But anyways, the, the, the show Fear Factor then, if you saw it, you know, it, it basically involved people eating grotesque things and doing goofy things. So, you know, make a million dollars, make a show like that. But there was a lawsuit brought against them. Aitken versus NBC. And in this case, a man who habitually watched Fear Factor, watched it, and the challenge was so grotesque that he said it made him throw up and run headfirst into a wall and injure himself. He sued them for two and a half million dollars. He lost. And there was another account, maybe you can identify with this, where a man was sued Bank of America. His problem was he was frustrated over phone calls with them over incorrectly deposited checks. And he got so tired of being transferred from one operator to another and nobody actually dealing with his problem that he decided to sue Bank of America, hear this, for $1,784 billion trillion. Now, I don't know everything about economics, but I'm pretty sure there doesn't actually exist $1,784 billion trillion. But he sued him for it. He lost. Other people, though, we bring this down to our level, other people often, when there's an accident, when there's an injury, they seem to want to cash in at times, or they're surrounded by people who encourage them to cash in. And so they look to something that might have brought slight harm to them as some type of big payday. Or they have others around them who encourage them this way. And so what God is protecting His people from in this passage is from that type of excessiveness. And so he says, you should receive a punishment. There should be a consequence, but it must fit the crime. And in that passage that we're all so familiar with, an eye for an eye, well, it's in the context there of what? If two men get in a fight and they hit a pregnant lady. We've got a few pregnant folks. I'll pick out Laura Bateman. I'd avoid football games right now, Louisville Clemson. I'd avoid bars, maybe church business meetings, I don't know. You know, basically they're saying if there's a, a pregnant woman standing by and these two men get in a brawl and somehow they knock her over, knock her down, run into her, so much so that it induces labor. And she has her child and that child is okay. They've got to pay a penalty. And not sure Lord knows, say amen, they sure should pay a penalty. They've got to pay something. It's decided by the husband, by the judge. But notice what else. If there is harm, if something happens to that child, then what is the penalty? And that is the context for this passage. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, and so on. Whatever harm is brought, that's the consequence. So God here is protecting His people through these regulations from, from our sinful inclination to want more than we deserve. To, to enact an excessive penalty on someone. And at the same time, He's upholding justice and He's saying that a penalty should be paid. There should be a consequence. Because just as we're familiar with lawsuits of frivolous, excessive requests, we're also familiar with cases where it seems that people get away with all kinds of things. And God is protecting His people from both of these here and saying that justice should be served. And apparently, in the context here, there was a problem with oxes goring people. 
And so he gives all these regulations about, well, if an ox gores and you didn't know he was going to do it, then you're okay, but kill the ox. But if you, you knew you had an ox that might gore somebody, then you're in trouble. I'm not sure exactly the practical application of that other than if you own a lot of cows, Jeff Lewis, oh, he's got, he was sitting right there. Make sure you know I called him out in the middle of the sermon. If you got one that's prone to gore people, you might want to lock that one up. Because God says here of the ox, if it's prone to gore and it does that and someone dies, not only should the ox be killed, but the person too. And then notice something that, that may seem kind of a bit out of place or unusual here. He gives this very specific penalty in verse 32. If an ox gores a slave, again, this will be an indebted servant. And so what he says is if this ox gores your servant, then, then the owner, the person responsible for that servant, so the person that's actually owed a debt and this person is working off that debt, if your ox gores that servant, then you are responsible to pay the master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned, the ox shall be killed. 30 pieces of silver. Can you think of anywhere else we see in the scripture 30 pieces of silver? 30 pieces of silver, if you're not aware, is what Judas was paid by the high priest to betray Jesus. And there's probably more there than this, but just on the surface, I think, you, you've got Judas betraying our Lord, and what does he ask for? Well, I guess, you know, give me whatever you would have given a master if their slave got hurt by an ox. You know? such, such a menial thing. He, he did not value, obviously, his Lord. But even what he sold him out for wasn't much. And so, back to the text here, we see that what God's doing is He's protecting His people from taking the law into their own hands because that was their temptation, just as it's our, tempt it's our temptation today. And we see the same temptation in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's where this comes to for us. The temptation for us when we seek revenge, is to be overcome by evil. Have you ever known somebody or found yourself in a situation where you're just eaten up by bitterness and anger? And a lot of times maybe it starts with something kind of small, but it just kind of wears on you and, and it eats on you and, and you just... You, you just want that other person or persons, you, you want them to get a consequence for it. Maybe you find yourself saying, well, yeah, they apologized, but it wasn't very sincere. You know? That the danger here, Paul writes to the Romans, is that when we seek to avenge ourselves, we take justice out of the hands of a righteous God and we put it into the hands of sinful man. And then that justice is tainted by our anger and it easily overcomes us. So what, what does that say? Does that mean that we shouldn't ever seek justice? I don't think that's what it's saying. But God's given us a system for that, just as he gave his people in Exodus 21 a system for that. I, I call your attention, we won't go through the whole text right now, but to Romans 13. 
In Romans 13, it's very clear that God establishes governing authorities, whether you voted for them or not. God establishes governing authorities to do His bidding and His good, to, to bear the sword, and they don't do that in vain. And so God says specifically in Romans 13 that, that the governing authority is a servant of God, the avenger who carries out God's wrath and the wrongdoer. So we have a justice system. We have these leaders for a reason because we're not the ones who are to take it into our own hands. We are to, to trust that system. Now we understand we live in a world where those systems are, are corrupt. We see situations all the time where justice is not served. And we see situations all the time where the guilty seem to go free and the innocent seem to be punished. But that doesn't mean we abandon that. What it means is that we need to trust in God. And that we need to trust that vengeance truly is the Lord. Listen, there has never been, nor will there ever be, a crime that goes unpunished. Now maybe it's not punished here and now, this side of eternity, but God says it will be one day. There's nothing done in the darkness that won't be brought into the light. And so God tells us to, to trust Him. And ultimately, the way we do that, He says, is point three there where we'll leave, is this. The Gospel enables us to do this. The Gospel enables us to pursue justice, but to do it with a heart of forgiveness. Now, I want to leave us with this text that I mentioned earlier. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus here said something directly about this passage in Exodus 21. He says, you've heard it said, it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now again, the, the Pharisees, the leaders in the day, were using this to bring excessive judgment on people. And so what does Jesus say? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. In other words, don't, don't fight against the one who is evil. But if anyone slapped you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Every time I read Matthew 5, I'm reminded of a story that was told in one of my seminary classes. Dr. Tim Booker, who many of you know, he preached here for a number of years. Dr. Booker, one of his favorite people in the history of uh, revivals and evangelical preachers with a guy named Peter Cartwright. He wasn't on Bonanza, different Cartwright here. Uh, Peter Cartwright was a circuit-riding Methodist preacher. They called him the backwoods preacher. He actually preached throughout Kentucky and surrounding states in the 1800s. And, and Peter Cartwright was known to be kind of just a, a, a real tough man. And so on one occasion, as he later wrote in his diary, he pulled into a town, I believe it was in Kentucky, and as he rode his horse into that town, the town drunk met him on the edge of the city limits and just started cursing him. And said, hey, are you that preacher? And he said, yeah. He said, get down off that horse. Cartwright gets down off his horse and this drunk gets in his face and he says, you, you believe what that, that book of yours, that Bible says? Cartwright says, I do. He says, it's saying in that book that if somebody hits you on your right cheek, you've got to turn the other also? He says, it does. And so that drunk just whew, papped him right in his face. Cartwright stood there. Then that drunk said, all right. And he just went and he smacked him in the other side of the face. Then Cartwright wrote this. Having received no further instruction from the Lord, I proceeded to beat the fool out of that drunk man. <laughs> it's 
So I, I couldn't read that passage without telling that story, although it might go counter to the point here. We, we laugh at that story. That's kind of what we want to do, isn't it? We want to strike back. We, we want to hit back. We want to take revenge. But why does Jesus tell us to turn the other cheek? He tells us to do this because he's making an important point about the care of our soul. See, the, the inclination of your heart is to fight back. You don't need, and I don't need Jesus to say to us, hey, if somebody hits you on the right cheek, you just take them down. You know who tells you to do that already? It's, it's the cry of our sinful heart. But what Jesus is saying to us is, is there's something deeper here. This is a gospel issue. We turn the other cheek, not because we don't believe in justice, but we turn the other cheek because we are those who are called to forgiveness. And so I believe what the gospel enables us to do is to seek justice, to, to trust in the systems God has given us, to correct those that need to be corrected, to pursue penalties for crimes and to pursue justice but as we do that to do that with a heart of forgiveness and friends to do that requires that we first receive forgiveness ourselves if you struggle with forgiving others this morning it may be because you don't actually know what forgiveness truly is See, the gospel compels us to forgive as we have been forgiven. And so if we have this inability to forgive others, if we're constantly harboring bitterness towards others, if there's these huge just, just breaks in our life with person after person because we won't forgive them or they won't forgive us, that, that, that's preaching a gospel, but it's preaching a false gospel. See, what the Gospel says is that God is a God of justice and He is a God of forgiveness. Why did Jesus die on the cross? I mean, God could have looked down at man and said, you know what, I know you've sinned, you've messed up, but hey, do over. Mulligan. We'll just wipe the slate clean here. That's not what He does. God looks at fallen humanity and says, all have sinned and fall short of My glory. God looks at fallen humanity and says the wages of sin is death because He's just. But He looks down at that same fallen humanity and He demonstrates His love toward us, Romans 5.8, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us because He's forgiven. And so friends, the call of the Gospel is a call to justice. And the call of the Gospel is a call to forgiveness. And we respond to that Gospel through repentance and through faith, and through trusting in Christ. And so I believe that's what the call is for us from Exodus 21 this morning. It's to forgive. You know, practically this morning, there may be someone in your life that you are harboring unforgiveness towards, and the Gospel compels you to forgive as you've been forgiven. The call from Exodus 21 is that we should not retaliate, but we should trust God ultimately for justice the call from exodus 21 is to realize the inclination of our sinful heart is to lash out and to attack 
that Christ died on the cross so that we would not have to follow the inclinations of our sinful heart and we might know a better way. And so wherever it is that you're at, however it is God might be speaking to you through this word, let's respond to him now. If you would, stand together as I pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word and the goodness of it. And Lord, even in a passage that may have first seemed a bit different or bizarre to us, there, there is so much truth here for us to consider. And so I pray for us, Lord, as we come into this time of response, as we end our time now with just worship and just singing and responding, Lord, I pray that you might do a work in our heart through the power of your Holy Spirit. If there needs to be forgiveness in this room, I pray there would be. If there are people in this room seeking retaliation and personal gain, I pray that they'd repent of that. Lord, if there's folks here today that, that have yet to respond to the truth of the gospel and the hope of it through repentance and faith, I pray they would. And I pray that none of this would be done in our efforts, but that it would be done through the power of the Spirit who works in the lives of those who trust in Christ. So would you do that work now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.